Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, I'd encourage you to go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on a rainy autumn day here in the capital is Chris Kell. Chris is director and co-owner of Wish Agency, a fully integrated, award-winning, full-service marketing agency based between Leeds, York and Harrogate. Uh, Chris, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us. Uh, Good morning and thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Chris, um, to welcome you onto the airwaves alongside me. Um, normally at this point in the show, we tend to dive straight into the topic of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start from that angle, because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourself and your business, just to what extent has it affected things? Yeah, it's been a crazy year, and um, and certainly we've we've felt the impact of it like like everybody else. Um, so it has changed changed things quite considerably, really. Um, just going back to when when things started to happen with the pandemic, um, we were able to to start to prepare for it, and with much of the work we do, we're quite well placed for remote working. So um, so we, we got everything set up, and um, the, the team were quite involved in getting us ready for for that when that happened and the lockdown began. Um, so it was a big change. We immediately introduced um, a daily catch-up. Um, doesn't roll off the tongue as nicely as Zoom, but there were Google Meets that we had. Um, so every morning we have a catch-up with the full team. Um, and um, quite quickly, everybody got used to that, that new way of working, really, where it was just those those Google um, catch-ups. And um, I think I actually started to talk to some people more than I used to do because you'd kind of plan a call in and, and have a, a good chat with people rather than a quick sort of chat at a desk or um, you know, catch it whilst you're in the kitchen making a coffee or whatever it might be. So, um, you know, there were certainly some some positives, but um, but yeah, it massively changed the way we we worked and we saw the impact of um, uh, economically and financially when uh, we had projects that were about to begin. For example, um, a couple of large website development projects that um, were immediately put on hold by those clients because obviously the uncertainty and they have to start to batten down the hatches a little bit and just, just um, plan a bit more carefully where their spend was going. Um, so that impacted on us um, and we had um, we work with um, Lakeside Village um, Shopping Outlet in Doncaster mm. um, which had to close pretty quickly and um, you know they're a big retained client so uh, you know, spend uh, was reduced with us. So unfortunately we had to put a few people on furlough um, <clears throat> excuse me at the at the uh, at the outset um, back in April um, and they remained on furlough and we haven't seen billings get back to where they were um, although there's been quite a lot of positives which I can come on to but <clears throat> we have just recently been through redundancy with a couple of people which was really tough mm. um, and you know not to, not a nice process to have to go through at all uh, not the sort of thing that you want to be doing in business and um, uh, you know so we've lost a couple of the team but um, but certainly, there's been positives that we're starting to see um, in, in the sense that you know, businesses want to get on, um, want to crack on with, with marketing in particular. And, um, you know, we've had some 
new inquiries and, and new opportunities and proposals. Uh, we won our first pitch over Zoom, um, which was an experience. I mean, as, as somebody who goes out and sees people all the time and, and, uh, and you know, do, does pitches, it's been quite, that's been the biggest change for me personally and, and Wolf, my business partner, in that, that that interaction with people and developing those relationships with people. Doing that over Zoom is so different and, and presenting over Zoom where you can't read the room um, was, was, was tough, but we, we won a, a big one um, quite early on back in June and, uh, and that was fantastic to set us up well for, for that going forward. Um, so it, it certainly, um, I'm rambling a little bit here, but um, it certainly um, changed the way things happen mm. in the so everyone's remote working now. We started to get everyone in on a Monday um, so that we could all at least you know, be in the same building uh, and have those crucial conversations as a, as a creative agency to get to get around the table and, and thrash ideas out and, and that sort of thing is not quite the same over uh, over Zoom. So being been able to do that in the flesh has been quite important for us. Mm. Um, and then obviously as things have evolved with the pandemic, um, we've obviously kept it very uh, relaxed in terms of giving people that freedom. Um, felt that was very important um, to support the team and give people the freedom. Everyone's got different views and uh, different concerns and different circumstances. So we wanted to make sure that we were as flexible as we could be uh, as an employer. So that seems to be working working well with the, the team. Mm. Because um, albeit the work from home side of things uh, certainly does have its uh, benefits and there are certainly mental health and well-being arguments for it. It isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach and um, it is important, like you say, that there is that also human social contact in the flesh and um, that's why I think that as we sort of move into the future it's likely that rather than seeing a wholesale move towards remote working it could well be that we're not going to see that come into vogue or the office return in vogue but more like like an amalgamation of the two maybe in the workplace of the future because even suppose when we have a vaccine and COVID-19 itself is no longer an issue providing that we do actually get a vaccine or a cure um, it isn't necessarily going to be a magic bullet that's going to send everything back to normal I mean these changes from this lockdown period some of them could well be here to stay yeah I completely agree with that I think it has changed the way people think about um working operations obviously some lines of work you, you can't uh, remote work you know manufacturing for example and, and you know jobs like that but the world that we're in um it's it, i guess taking if you can take any positive from this this horrendous year um you know it's it has changed our thinking a, a little bit you know we we, we did have um, some remote work anyway before um, but we've now seen that you can actually have the entire team remote working and it works. And um, you know, we were able to function very, very well as an agency uh, and, and still support our clients and make sure that everything was happening uh, and projects were getting delivered. So it, it does work. And I think that going forward, that's something that we'll take from it. It, it really hit our growth plans. Obviously, we had a, a five-year growth strategy that we were working towards and that's kind of been hit by what's happened. Part of that was... Um, looking to open an office in London, um, expand, uh, and so on. And with that came a lot of a lot of cost. But potentially, what's happened now can can make us look at that a little bit differently. And, and we can still have those London plans to to expand down there. But perhaps we don't need the office space that we were thinking we might need before. Uh, and maybe we can do it with a slightly different approach. So there's certainly mm. um, positives that can be taken. But it, yeah, definitely, I think it's it's probably changed the, the working environment 
with it for, for good going forward. And I think there are positives with that, like you say, with the, the work-life balance and people having a bit more flexibility, mm. I think is, is important as well. Yeah, certainly, because mental health and well-being is certainly very, very important, and they have been amplified by the uh, the pandemic for sure. Um, for from for yourself and sort of your own point of view, um, how has it actually been sort of adapting to the leading from a distance side of things? Because it does, albeit it is beneficial, it does come with its own sort of set of challenges, and you do have to essentially sort of reshape your own leadership model, don't you? In a way, yeah, um, it has been. It's certainly challenging, um, but uh, and I guess one of the biggest challenges there was myself and business partner not seeing each other uh, and just having those remote calls and, and chats. Um, whereas beforehand, we're in the same building um, all the time, sharing an office, and we can talk about all sorts of things and uh, and make quick decisions about things. So that's been one of the biggest challenges. And then, um, yeah, not seeing some of the team for for several months um, was was tough. Um, but yeah it's just been a case of, of adapting a little bit in, in how we do things and the, the big thing for us is, is always been really transparent and open communication with the team um, and and we've been able to just continue to do that so keeping them informed on financials and, and what's happening in the business and what's happening with clients and um, one of the early messages that we had for everybody when this was all set to happen we spoke to a lot of our clients and um, the, the communication that we had put, put to the team was businesses want to, everyone's in the same situation and we all just want to get on everybody just wants to actually continue uh, and they're having to just work around this massive obstacle that's come in and, and this, this challenge that's affected everybody but everybody just wants to get on so we need to, to carry on as normal uh, and provide the support and and you know not be too concerned about everything and the, the spend's good you know things are continuing so you know, not not to worry about things, but um, you know, and and throughout the situation, we just can you continue to do that? Mm. Um, you know, I'm spending more time in the office now uh, as his work with his partner, so we are getting to have those conversations as well. So it's just been a case of adapting to the situation, but um, but you know, we managed managed it pretty well, I think. And just thinking about looking at this from a positive slant and moving away from the doom and gloom ever so slightly, is there anything over the last few months that you sort of can take as a positive from this experience of crisis management, if we call it that? Um, yeah, I think um, it's obviously the, the things I've touched on about you know, the remote work inside of things and so on. Um, it's We're having more face-to-face um calls with clients i think you know we we used um google meet prior to the pandemic but not much you know we did we used it on occasion but it was still if i was going to talk to a client i'd pick up the phone and and have a chat with them um but now it seems to be um much more just the norm that you send a meeting link uh, and you you have a screen call so so you kind of you, you know you share a screen and you can talk about things on the screen and and it's all you know the technology's there um, perhaps we weren't um, uh, exploiting that as much as perhaps we could have done. So I think that's a real positive that we can now have those conversations with people, no matter where they are in the country. And sometimes where we might have driven across to, I don't know, let's let's say Birmingham to to have an hour's meeting with somebody. Um, uh, now we can have it on on a, a screen share um, from our our boardroom at, at our, our grand studios and and save all that travel time 
it helps the environment, of course, as well. Um, and everyone's kind of having time saved by it, so we can actually get more done uh, and not have a whole day where we're driving down somewhere, having a meeting, driving back, um, so we can actually compact it into a you know, busier day. So I think there's, you know, there's certainly positives in just streamlining the way we work and getting a bit more efficient in how we, we manage time and have meetings with people where you, but then you're still actually getting that face-to-face time with them just just not uh, in the flash. And thinking about sort of keeping that positivity going over the uh, the next 12 months, um, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, Chris, I'm interested to understand where you see uh, Wish Agency being in a year's time and what you're hoping to have achieved by then in the backdrop of everything that is going on, because we know we're going to have to get through a bit of a tricky winter we know of course with things changing at quite short notice we can't look too far ahead but if we pretend we have a crystal ball for a moment what is it that you're really hoping to to achieve yeah um yeah it's uh i think certainly you know i'm very optimistic person anyway uh and and always look at things positively and and, you know where the, the good things that you can bring out of any situation and wolf's the same so the main thing for us is getting our growth strategy back on track and um you know i think with the things that are, are going on at the moment and things that are in the pipeline hopefully we can um start to build back to where we were before the pandemic and then get to get things back on track with our our five year plan um so that's that's kind of a ambition uh, and something we'd hope for it's you know, it's very frustrating with everything going on to do with the the pandemic. There's there's so much politics that's come into it all that uh, that has made it kind of frustrating to watch. When perhaps we needed a bit more of a joined up um, approach from from Parliament. Um, so there's that frustration that we just have to to live with, I suppose, and, and different viewpoints and different um, decisions that could be made about things. Um, you know, we just witnessed all that. The, the back and forth between Manchester and uh, and the government, um, but um, uh, I don't think it's really great for for anybody. But we just have to see what what comes and and, and how things pan out. And um, for us, it's just focusing on our business and, and our clients, and, and making sure that our clients are getting the, the fantastic service that we're well known for. And um, and we just can continue to get that word of mouth. Business development, is, you know, again, it's something I didn't really touch on, but a real challenge is that business development because getting out to see people is mm. not as easy. We we used to do a lot of um, direct mail, and that we would we would send out mailings uh, and, and follow up on those. But people aren't as keen to receive, uh, you know, mailings in the post from from uh, an unknown agency. So mm. um, there's all these concerns that we have to to adapt to. So. We're having to, to rethink how we uh, approach new business uh, and come up with new plans and ideas. But, you know, again, I think we can take all positives from that. It's just giving us uh, a much greater arsenal to dip into from a, a new business development perspective. Um, the team, I think it's, it's in a way, it's kind of galvanized that, that sort of team ethos of everyone pulling together. Everyone's been really, really busy um, throughout. You know, we have a lot of high, uh, clients in the healthcare sector. Mm. But when things started to happen at the start, we, we had to um, do a, a huge amount of work in helping them with recruitment and so on. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's created a really strong team vibe that we just need to develop and, and then hopefully get to the point where we can start to recruit and bring, uh, you know, start to build on the team again. So, um, yeah, lots, lots to be optimistic and positive about, but it's just, Uncertainty, as we know, is is really tough for business, um, and the longer there's there's uncertainty around this, and 
businesses having to shut and you know it, it all has a knock-on effects and um, confidence in the consumer market and so on so we just have to hope that um, that things we can start to see some some form of uh, getting back to normality whether it's vaccine or um, you know it, 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 enough people have had it where uh, it starts to become not as much of a problem mm. um, that there aren't as many people getting so sick and um, but yeah very very challenging times for for the government and, and so on but um, uh, but yeah I think there's definitely positives for, for us as a business that we can take from everything that's happened as well as all the, the difficult side of it as well but we can uh, push on from here hopefully. It is interesting that you say that it's uh, very much um, like sort of going back to basics in a sense and finding new income streams. So many business leaders have said very, very similar um, when they've been on the programme over the last few months. It's like going back to basics, their first days in business. And it just goes to show that so much of leadership is about your ability to adapt. And a lot of it is certainly trial and error. And we'll be seeing a lot more of that over the uh, the next few months for sure as we continue to adapt um, British industry as a whole to the challenges that it's going to throw up. And I think yeah. that that positive attitude towards it certainly is an infectious one. And we could all use a little bit of a dose of that morale going forward. And I think as well, just given how enlightening it's been for me hearing what's been going on behind the scenes at Wish over the year, the last few months, Chris, that it would be great to catch up at some point in this next few months and have you back on the show just to see how things are really starting to take shape. Yeah, that'd be great, Scott. So, um, yeah, more than happy to do that and catch up again and, and, uh, give you a bit of an update on where, where, we, where we're up to. I'd certainly hope at that point in time as well that there would be some positive news to uh, to share. Um, in the meantime, Chris, please do take care and stay safe with everything that is still going on in the world because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. And I would certainly extend that to everybody associated with the business as well. You too. Thanks very much, Scott. And I would also like to include the listeners within that as well. Please do stay well, look after yourselves and certainly be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Chris Kell, director and co-owner of Wish Agency, onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. During his playing days, Sir Andrew um, joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew um, spent a period of time as Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board as well as becoming a champion for charitable and mental health concerns. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan welcomed the opportunity to speak with him. That is of course coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood services to sport just last year so congratulations on that yeah thank you um now there have been ups and downs in the career like any career including public and private disagreements with certain individuals and on that front i think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven marcus dress for giving you that stupid lord brockett nickname <laughs> um well my recollection was that it wasn't marcus just who gave me that nickname ah. it was actually mark butcher uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place, 
and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness, they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, 
Um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd, broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but i, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it. 
for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was what was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the 
all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground and so you know you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves Mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again inspired Another generation of, uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You'd never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses number one to 
fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re uh, wearing red. So what what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, 
that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.